Good morning and welcome to the first convocation of the school year. My name is Jacob landis and I'm a junior communication and theater major from Colorado and also a member of the convocation committee. I'm here to introduce Pre President James E. Brenneman, also known to GC students as Jimmy B. Brenneman grew up in Tampa, Florida and came to Goshen College long ago as a pre-med student. Like many of us, his interests changed after he got here and he graduated in 1977 with an interdisciplinary major in Bible, biology, and natural science. Brenneman went on to seminary at Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart, Indiana, and earned his Master of Divinity degree from Fuller Theological Seminary in California. At Claremont Graduate University, he earned a doctorate in 1994 with a focus in Hebrew Bible and Old Testament studies. He is the author of several books and articles, including On Jordan's Stormy Banks, Lessons from the Book of Deuteronomy, published in 2004, and Canons in Conflict, Negotiating Texts and True and False Prophecy, published by Oxford University Press in 1997. Brenneman was ordained as a minister in 1986. He found and served as the lead pastor of Pasadena Mennonite Church in Pasadena, California for 20 years. In 2006, President Brenneman his wife, Dr. Terry Plank Brenneman, whom he met at Goshen College while they were both living in Howell, and their son, Quinn, moved to Goshen so he could serve as the 14th president of Goshen College. Each fall, our president launches the new school year at the opening convocation. Please join me in welcoming President Brenneman this morning. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, and welcome back. It is so great to see you all back on campus. It's a lonely place without you. I hope you had a great summer. I had a good one. You no doubt got some R&R, &R, did a little bit of reading, maybe a lot of eating, maybe you traveled some. Some of you hung around and were scholars in our Maple Scholars program. Others of you uh, actually helped with our leadership program this summer. Thank you for that. Maybe you even went to Disneyland. Who knows what you did? One, maybe even conquered some of your worst fears this summer like I did. This will be the summer in the Brenneman household, the summer in which dad overcame acrophobia. That is, I overcame, I think, more or less, my fear of heights. And I'll tell you how I did it. Quinn and I, my 14-year-old, we went down to Costa Rica to, do, uh, to bone up on our Spanish in a, in a Spanish immersion program. Every morning we had four hours of intensive Spanish, we had the afternoons free, and he dared me to go with him on a zip line tour. I thought, well, you know, I can handle that. You know, it's probably one or two summer camp kind of zip line, but no, you know, this was 11 zip lines. We went to the top of a mountain, to the top of 100-foot trees, there were canopies over us, and there were 11 zip lines across whole valleys. And we're standing on this little wire mesh at the top of one of those trees with monkeys going around above us. And I'm supposed to leap out into the unknown on this thin little cable across a whole valley. Well, I made it through the first one. The second one, I braked so hard across that I stopped like 100 feet from the end. <laughs> so I had to turn around and pull myself the rest of the way back to uh, the next tree. Needless to say, I never braked after that, and I came flying in at full speed again. 
Well, the third one, I had to get to it by walking across one of these narrow little hanging bridges, you know, that are shaking. And of course, smart Alex in front of me are shaking it. So I'm like, I didn't want to actually crawl. That would have been too embarrassing. But here I was, stuck high above in the mountains across a valley, scared to death, and the only way down was to go through zip lines to the other end. Well, it turns out about, about around the ninth one, I'm, I'm feeling pretty free and loose. And so I decide to do the unthinkable. I went across the ninth one upside down. And as old as I am, I still couldn't help screaming at the top of my lungs, look, mom, no hands, <laughs> as I looked across the way. So I overcame some of my fears this summer, and I hope you did too. Um, in fact, some of you are here for the first time and or maybe you're coming back and you have your own fears here at Goshen College. I want to assure you that the elevation here at Goshen is much lower, so you don't have to worry. That's one less fear you'll have to worry about. And furthermore, like Ralph Waldo Emerson said, knowledge is the antidote for fear. And there's a whole lot of knowledge going on in this place, so I hope that will ease our fears as well you've come to the right place. Unless, of course, you are hippopotamomonstrosikipalideophobia. That means you're, you're afraid of big words. So if, that, if that's the case, I don't know if we'll be able to help you while you're here. But I am here to tell you that you have no fear that the combined compassion and love and conviction and serious smarts in this room will help you get, conquer almost any fear because you are one of the best darn student bodies in the whole world. And I welcome you back. Thank you for coming. Now, I want you... I want us to help welcome everyone here this morning. So if you are seniors and or above, will you please stand and we'll give you a warm welcome. Seniors and above. All right. How about all third years? If you're a junior, will you stand and... All right. Second year sophomores, will you please stand? Wow. And how about you first years? Will you please stand? We'd love to have you here. Now, what if you are a graduate student, a transfer student, or one of a part of our adult programs? Will you please stand? Transferring from another place? Or... Yeah. Good. Now, there's some overlap here, so if you've stood once, you can stand again. How about students who are from outside the continental United States? Will you please stand? Welcome to all of you. And those who are closer in, like let's say 300 miles and or further from Goshen College, but in the United States. Will you please stand? Up? 
and everyone else who lives nearby 300, year, 300 miles or less, will you stand? Great. Those of you who just got back from SST or are about to go to Peru or to Jamaica or to Egypt, will you please stand? And last but least, how about the faculty, staff, and administrators who are here? Will you please stand? Okay, now, did I miss anyone? Anyone? Any lonesome people out there who need a... Okay, everyone stand and say hi to someone next to you. We could have done that for a while, I'm sure. Well, this morning, we're going to focus our attention for a bit on, in this opening convocation, uh, on what it means to be a Christ-centered college or university. As you know by now, here at Goshen College, we speak about five historic core values around which we try to orient our teaching and learning. You can read a short synopsis of each of those with biblical reference. In other words, to give you a little bit of a context by what we mean by servant leader, passionate learners, global citizens, compassionate peacemakers, and or Christ-centeredness by going, uh, go to the website, click on About GC, and then Find Core Values, and you can read up on that as well. Beginning this year, I've established a core values institute that will help us ensure that those core values are more than just words that we use, but are embedded deeply into the institutional life. And you can check that program out by going to about, click on about Goshen College, about GC, click on core values, and then click on core values institute, and it will uh, describe to you how we hope to embed these values into the fabric of our institutional life be you a student, faculty, staff, or board member uh, as well. As a college community, one way we'll be doing that, we'll be engaging these core values methodically and deliberately uh, year by year on a, cycle, a cyclical basis. And this year we begin with the core value of Christ-centeredness. There's a lot more to the program. You can check it out online. You'll see that our campus ministries are, is already tackling this core value by focusing our attention on the theme of being transformed by Christ. Today, however, I want to speak specifically about, uh, by the way, this will be a two-part series. The other half I will speak later in the uh, fall semester. But today we'll be answering and addressing the question of what does it mean to be a Christ-centered college? What does it mean to be Christ-centered? As teachers, staff, administrators, and students, we need to consider our response to what this particular core value means for Goshen College as an institution. As a way of engaging the question, I want us to spend a couple of minutes just encountering Christ visually as imagined by different artists and others across the centuries. 
We're going to begin then. Uh, I've asked that associate professor of music, Bev Lapp, come to the piano, and let's just spend a minute or two uh, seeing some of these various images of Christ.
Well, I'm guessing some of those images were quite familiar, others quite strange as well. Um, here's one that's very familiar to many of us who grew up in the 50s and 60s. This is the Protestant classic Jesus, the Roman Catholic Jesus. Here's the Eastern Orthodox icon Jesus. We have baby Jesus. We have Schwarzenegger Jesus. We have African-American Savior. We have Asian Christ, the Shroud of Turin Jesus, the thought to be the shroud that covered uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, and that's an artist's depiction of what that shroud might look like. Uh, we have a first century Jewish Jesus made by a forensic anthropologist who found skulls, who found skulls uh, based in that area where Jesus lived around Tiberias and with 3D computer and clay designed a typical male in that time. Jesus was potentially about five foot one and 160 pounds. That's the average male in the time, but quite strong with short hair, not at all like the kind we, not a lot all like this one, for example. Back to the classic Jesus, some have converted this Jesus into the cool and smooth Jesus or the CEO Jesus or the biker Jesus, one I don't particularly like, or the rock and roll Jesus, the radical revolutionary Jesus, the was up Jesus, you know, the cool Jesus for every man. And this one, Quinn and I, when we were in Mackinac Island, this and Terry, we, we ran across this cup in one of the stores. Jesus shaves. If you fill it with hot water, the beard comes off. So there you go. For others, we have the abstract Jesus. For some reason, this is going without my clicking automatically. I'm a little worried about that. Uh, and then we have um, certainly uh, many different kinds of Jesus's images as there are people with imagination to imagine who Jesus is. What then is to keep us from simply creating a Jesus that we find compatible with our own individual tastes? What keeps us from turning Jesus into our particular Jesus, who is merely a ventriloquist dummy that sits on our lap and does Jesus-y kind of things based according to our own whims and wishes? What keeps us from sinfully appropriating Jesus in service of our own cultural values, as Charles Hackett of Candler School of Theology asks? One helpful guide is scripture, of course. But even then, when we, when we open the pages of scripture, we soon discover that even there we find different portraits of who Jesus was. To begin with, even the title Christ is already one major step removed from the very real person that uh, the mom and dad of Jesus named him simply Jesus, or Jesus of Nazareth. Then, beginning in Mark's gospel, Jesus is portrayed by St. Mark as a miracle worker, full of mystery, not even fully aware of his own calling until the very end of Mark, unlike all the other gospels where Jesus knows who he is right from the beginning. But this so-called messianic secret is a big deal in the book of Mark. Matthew's gospel portrays Jesus as a rabbi, a teacher, particularly focused on his Jewishness written for primarily a Jewish audience, complete with references, lots of references, to the Older Testament about the prophecy of who this Jewish Messiah would be. For Luke, Jesus comes across as a, a whiner and a diner. He, he dines with the lowlifes, with the sinners. He's poor. 
but he's fun to be around. He's a first century party animal. He was accused of being a wine bibber, or as one uh, person describes him, he was a wine-swilling vagrant, clearly an outsider, an itinerant preacher who plans his travel ministry around eating here or there. St. John's Gospel goes clear to the other side and says, no, Jesus was divine, and he was with God in the beginning. He was the Word of God, and he was there from the beginning. And now he's God-made flesh, or as uh, Professor Joanne Brandt suggests in her amazing, wonderful book on John, he's a human actor in a divine drama. He's the ultimate savior of the whole cosmos, John says, and my savior too, I would add this morning. From these same four Gospels and other biblical texts, other historians and readers have declared that Jesus was a Galilean peasant. That he was a, or others say, no, he was a middle-class artisan. Or he was an apocalyptic prophet, a radical political revolutionary, an ultimate pacifist. Or, on the other hand, an end-time judge and warrior. Or a wise sage. The Son of God, the Son of Man, Emmanuel, Redeemer, Good Shepherd, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, King of All, Prince of Peace, God in the flesh. You got it. Lots of different images in Scripture. For some 300 years, the church argued over the various scriptural claims to Jesus, with some success uh, now articulated in several ancient creeds, though even then there are differences between those creeds. Add up all the different descriptions of Jesus in the Bible with the ancient creeds about, who say, about what they say Jesus is, alongside our own varied and personal experiences of Christ and our responses to this question, what does it mean to be a Christ-centered uh, institution, uh, begins to uh, um, spin almost out of control. One can easily understand the worried frustration of the Irish poet William Butler Yeats at the unraveling over 20 centuries of what might have been the promises of centeredness that began in the cradle in Bethlehem. He writes in his poem on the second coming, he calls it, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. Well, so far as I know, the second coming is potentially at hand. We don't know. But until then, with Scripture as our guide, let us consider the question, what does it mean to be a Christ-centered college? I'll focus primarily simply on two responses, among others and many others, and some of which I will address later in the fall. Simply put, the variety of descriptions of Jesus Christ in Scripture alone, I would, because of that variety, I would first claim that whatever else we mean by the phrase Christ-centered, its meaning is its semantic domain has to be quite generous, expansive, inclusive, and diverse. So first of all, to be Christ-centered is an open invitation to conversation about Jesus Christ. If God allowed such diverse points of view in Holy Scripture as to who the real Jesus Christ was, apparently unity of perspective on this question was not the highest priority for God. I, for one, find this fact, this scriptural norm, to be absolutely delightful. Scripture models for us a diversity of opinion about who Christ was, 
Scripture models for us a truly intercultural, intertextual, dialogical conversation about what it means to be Christ-centered. The downside of this scriptural flexibility means that we tend to tribalize Jesus according to our own cultural values, or we tend to read scripture selectively in accordance with our cultural heritage. So we end up with a Mennonite Jesus, a Catholic Jesus, an Ethiopic Jesus, an Eastern Orthodox Jesus, a Baptist Jesus, a Pentecostal Jesus, an Episcopal Presbyterian or Lutheran Jesus, a Charismatic Jesus, a Pentecostal Jesus, a non-denominational Jesus, and on. And we tend to believe that our particular tribal version is the right one, or at least the one that is the most or the closest to the truth than than the alternatives. Standing on the outside, looking in on Christianity, immediate, visceral response to all these tribes of Christianity, these denominations and non-denominations, each claiming to be Christ-centered, a person might wonder from the outside looking in whether the center truly holds or not. So at the very least, whatever else we mean here at Goshen College about being a Christ-centered place, our first claim must be a modest one. This doesn't mean that over the course of your time at Goshen College, we won't share with you what a Goshen College perspective is or what we mean by the description Christ-centeredness. We will. I'm attempting to do a little bit of that today, and I said in the fall I will do it much more deliberately and comprehensively as to its relevance to a liberal arts discipline or education. For now, the shorthand version is simply to say that from a Goshen College perspective, the other four core values provide nuance and clarity to the meaning of being a Christ-centered campus community. In the coming weeks, in convocation, you'll also hear from Professor of History John D. Roth on what, he, on what a naked Anabaptist looks like. Anabaptist, by the way, is an anti-Baptist. You'll learn about that as well. But what does a naked Mennonite or Anabaptist look like? Meaning, what if you boil it all down, what are some of the essential points? And I'm asking that he at least, please don't bring visuals to that. And if he does, <laughs> I hope John will wear a couple of fig leaves. Uh, Throughout the year, we'll be focusing on this and we'll reflect on what it means to be transformed by Christ. And Tamara Schantz, pastor, campus minister, will also be leading us in chapel on that theme this, this week as well. I'm not too worried then that you will not hear the particularity of the Goshen College perspective on what it means to be a Christ-centered institution. If anything, our temptation might be to claim a bit too much and to tribalize Christ to our own liking and comfort zone as to become a caricature of true Christ-likeness. And I hope that doesn't happen. So if Christ-centeredness is first a modest and open conversation about Jesus Christ, it is also a threshold for reconciliation, not a wall for separation. If the Apostle Paul is correct in his second letter to the Corinthians about Christ being the great reconciler who breaks down walls of separation, then one of the most important criteria in my mind for assessing the authenticity of a Christ-centered claim is whether or not Christ has indeed broken down the walls of separation, the walls of segregation between people who differ from each other, whether by gender, social, 
racial or cultural factors of one kind or another. Such a claim, it seems to me, can be quite easily measured by asking the simple question, are there fewer barriers, walls, obstacles between people who differ from each other by race, creed, culture, gender, denomination, or opinion today in our churches, in our community, in our Goshen College community than there was yesterday? Depending on how one answers that question determines to what degree one can claim to be transformed by Christ the Reconciler. Whatever particularities we claim to have that separate us from each other, it seems to me that being transformed by Christ will play itself out in quite generous orthodoxy that lowers the walls of separation to mere thresholds of reconciliation to step across. Now, to say that they're thresholds isn't to say they're not important, but it certainly lowers them way down from where we tend to keep them at wall length. Can such a generous, contagious, inclusive Christ-centeredness prevail on this campus? Can Christ really break down the walls that separate Mennonite from non-Mennonite students, staff, and faculty? Harder still, perhaps, can Christ break down the walls that separate Democratic-leaning students, staff, and faculty with, let's say, Republican-leaning students, staff, or faculty? Harder still, perhaps, though it may be a toss-up, can Christ break down the walls that separate us by racial, ethnic, and cultural prejudices? Can Christ break down the walls of separation between people from different social classes, philosophical and religious persuasions as well? I think Christ can do that. I believe Christ do that. I have seen Christ do that. <laughs> but I'd like to put a test, one test, on just one of those categories for us this morning. If you are a person from another faith tradition, other than Christianity, let's say, I would love to hear, and, and you're here today, you're part of our student body, I would love to hear from you how you see Christ from the outside the historic Christian faith. If I were to guess, I imagine that your perspective might even challenge our own easy belief in Jesus or what it means to claim to be Christ-centered. I wonder, for example, whether you see those of us who claim to be Christ followers truly living the Christ-like life as you perceive it to be. I'm convinced that those of us who claim to be Christian, if we simply listened, really listened, to those of you here from other than Christian faiths, those of you here from non-Christian faith traditions, really listened and made a list of your, your perspectives on what a Christ-centered person or college might look like, and then we simply tried to live the Christ-like life described on that list, we would be so transformed so very close to the Christ portrayed in Holy Scriptures that a spiritual awakening, a transformation might indeed spread across this campus and the whole Christian church. I'm asking those of you from non-Christian traditions to hold us accountable to our own claims about who we are. Which brings us to this issue of being transformed by Christ. It can be a wrenching feat for anyone. To be transformed by Christ may require that we reinvent life as we know it. 
Transformation reshapes caterpillars into butterflies. It converts hell into heaven. Transformation changes, the Bible says, what is meant for evil into something good. Transformation turns sinners like me into almost saints. (laughs) I'm still working on that. Transformation breaks down ancient tribal, cultural, racial, social, and religious walls of separation to mere thresholds of distinction. Transformation requires a rewrite of our stories into a whole new powerful story. It's my hope and prayer that you will join me and countless others who hallowed these sacred halls of Goshen College to begin to write anew this Goshen College story, a story that's 117 years old but needs to be constantly refreshed and made added exciting new chapters of, of being transformed by Christ little by little, piece by piece. Those chapters are still being written, and you are the characters in that great story. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I'm Scott Hostetler, Assistant Professor of Music, and we are a singing community here at Goshen College as well as being a Christ-centered community. Um, You do not have to be a perfect singer to join in this community. You just have to sing from your heart uh, and sing with praise. And you'll find singing uh, in many different venues, in chapels, um, at soccer games, and also in the Goshen College choirs. So of course, this is my time to plug uh, joining one of the Goshen College choirs. We still have some slots available for auditions, please come over to our beautiful music center. You too could rehearse there on a semi-regular basis. So um, another way that we join in um, as a singing group is to sing our lovely alma mater, which we've been doing for many, many generations. It's a way for us to connect with past Goshen College students and to connect to future Goshen College students and faculty. So uh, I believe you're passing out the alma mater, which should be on the ends of your pews. We don't have enough for everybody, so if you know it really well, um, don't take one, give it to somebody who doesn't. Also, those of you who are familiar with it, sing out with gusto on the first verse to help those who are learning. And then by the end, everybody should be singing strong. Let's stand.
be seated. My name is Becky Horst. We have a tradition here that we end the opening convo with an applause avenue. In light of the time, we're going to modify that a little bit this year. We're going to have two, one going out that door and one going out this door. So if you're in this half of the auditorium, you make your way this way. If you're in this half of the auditorium, make your way toward the glass doors. Faculty and staff, go ahead. You get the tunnel started. And then, in a minute, I'll dismiss the seniors, and then everyone else after that. Seniors, you help make the tunnel longer and keep welcoming people. But everyone else, you can just keep walking through it to your class, OK? So that's the modification. Faculty and seniors will make the tunnel. Everyone else will walk through it. OK, seniors, go ahead and join the faculty. Seniors, go ahead and join the faculty out one of those doors. Okay, now everyone else, make your way out that door if you're in this half of the auditorium, this door if you're in this half. And have a great day and a great year. <laughs>